This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, February 3rd, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes. Half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 8 p.m. in London. 9 p.m. in Paris. 10 p.m. in Kiev. I still can't do it. Oh. <coughs> 10 p.m. in Kiev. Kiev. Uh, the 11th hour in Moscow. The 11th hour and a half in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland. And beyond that, lunchtime. Saturday lunchtime in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. Uh, and this is, in case you don't recognize the voice, this is Mark Stein, guest hosting for our pre-scheduled guest host, if you still remember me. Uh, the core of the show remains the same, and that is your questions. Anyone, any of the 7 billion-plus good souls across this planet are free to listen to this show. Uh, you only have to be a Mark Stein Club member if you want to ask a question. So if you have no questions to ask, you have no need to join. But if you would like to join, we'd love to have you. And uh, we'll make a point if you uh, join in the next 60 minutes or thereabouts of rushing your question to the head of the queue. Uh, let us see. Well, oh, this is the big story of the moment, the hour. Elissa, so we've got like a few questions on this. Elissa Angel writes, do you suppose the Chinese officials misunderstood the English term trial balloon? So they sent an actual balloon to see how we react to it. <laughs> yeah, it's like all that stuff about uh, Trojan horses. It's, it, it, it's, it is like actually sending a, uh, a literal uh, horse made in, wooden horse made in Troy. Uh, <laughs> the world has become incredibly literal. I'm, uh, Tucker Carlson and I were talking about this, whatever it was, a year and a half back. 
in the age of the internet, the internet has made everybody incredibly literal. I think I mentioned to Tucker. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. I was making jokes about Joe Biden exaggerating everything. And uh, I casually uh, referred to him saying, so I went up to this nine-star general and all these people wrote in, oh, we don't have nine-star generals. That's twice as many stars as any. <laughs> And uh, what was the other one I did? The Battle of War. Yeah, the Battle of Waterloo was one on the playing fields of Eton, which used to be a famous expression by the Duke of Wellington, uh, making the point that the values inculcated in English public schools were what, were what had enabled them uh, to uh, win at Waterloo. And so I said the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. And I got all these, Stein, you're talking complete crap. I looked it up and Waterloo is like some place in Belgium. It's nowhere near uh, Eton, which appears to be a school near Windsor Castle. In it. So it is entirely possible that in such an insane world, <laughs> the Chinese have sent a literal trial balloon. And uh, as trial balloons go, so far it's going their way. Jamie writes, Mark, what do you think it says about the U.S. defense priorities that a Chinese surveillance balloon is met by, quote, monitoring and, quote, observation and not, oh, I don't know, shooting it down? Uh, yeah, that is very true. I remember how things went a couple of decades ago, I think it was the first months of the... I can probably work this out if I uh, think about it a bit. Yeah, I would say in the first three or four months of the Bush administration. So early spring 2001. I know this uh, because I happened to get the opportunity to discuss this with the then Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, about the Chinese uh, detaining a so-called American spy plane, uh, which had uh, collided or come close to colliding with the Chinese plane and had been forced to land. And then the Chinese did what they all they they held the American guys hostage. Uh, we're not apparently <laughs> butch enough to hold a trial balloon hostage. Uh, you know, we should shoot it. The, the, the Chinese explanation is that, oh, this is rather primitive. It's hard to change course. I think one explanation, I heard this uh, on the radio, is that, in fact, don't worry, we're not spying on America. The trial balloon is actually there to spy on Canada. Oh, oh that's OK then. Uh, but yeah, I think I think the difference between the Chinese being prepared to detain actual flesh and blood and blood Americans and the uh, Americans not being willing to detain a trial balloon actually tells you a lot about uh, where these relative powers stand against each other. It's complicated because of the fact that, as we've discussed on previous shows, the Biden family is on the take from China. So they're totally controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. One of the reasons that Joe Biden has so much classified material in his garage is, is not because he has more garages than someone who has been a quote-unquote public servant all his life could reasonably expect to have, 
but presumably because some of those papers are of interest to his Chinese chums. The 10% for the big guy. What do you think the big guy is doing in return for the 10%? You know, this is why the evil FBI and other deep... Because, again, just to go back, because we've got the stupid thing now where uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers have uh, filed a cease and desist order with the Fox News, the New York Post, various other parties, telling them to stop using personal information from Hunter Biden's laptop. Previously, as you recall, the position of not just the Biden family, but of all those crack national intelligence uh, agencies and their retired heads and the entire U.S. media was that this was a Russian disinformation campaign. So it, it can't be both Hunter Biden's personal information and Russian disinformation. So effectively, by sending the cease and desist order to the New York Post and various other outlets, uh, the Biden family was uh, abandoning its story of the last uh, two and whatever it is, two and a quarter years that, that, that they'd previously stuck to. The important thing to remember here is, as we've discussed before and as various of our commenters have pointed out, with Hunter Biden, the sex and drugs is a cover for the central core underlying reality which is that the Biden family, Joe, his brother, his son, are basically uh, Chinese assets. So Chinese assets, this is the reality. Chinese assets are not going to shoot down a Chinese surveillance balloon, are they? It's just not going to happen. Uh, not not going to happen at all. Uh, Tom Lewis writes, uh, Mark, I know you rarely talk about your personal life. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, do, I do, don't I? I don't think I didn't talk about it. Are you, you're making me... I, if you're sort of implying I so don't talk about it that it my lack of talking about it in itself is suspicious. Uh, anyway, Tom Lewis continues, if it's appropriate, tell us what kinds of changes you're making to adapt to your recent heart difficulties. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay free. Well, uh, you know, I had actually I had a little bit of good news yesterday uh, on the cardiological front, uh, which which uh, cheered me up a, a, a little, uh, which I might actually uh, talk about in a bit. I've been I mean, basically, I'm not making a lot of uh, changes because basically my life came to a big halt in December and I ceased doing everything I normally do. And that was easier to do because. Uh, as uh, as I've explained, I, I had my second heart attack in uh, France on driving south of uh, Grenoble. Beautiful road, one of the one of the loveliest places in places in the world, I would say, to have a heart attack. If you're looking for a really great place to have a heart attack, uh, and so I've, I've put my life on hold, and I've been very cautiously reinserting bits of it. Uh, as we 
as as we move along, including this show, today's show. We'll see if we can do. I can do the full hour. Sometimes I run out of puff, and I can't quite manage it. But that's why what we're gonna uh, go. Matilda. That's one of my favourite names. I uh, I knew a lovely lady uh, called Matilde from the Haute Savoie, uh, who is no longer with us. Uh, so I'm. Uh, that is a that is a beautiful name. You know me. I uh, often play Yves Montand's. I think we did it on Australia Day. Just uh, was it last week or whenever? Uh, Yves Montand's absolutely lovely version of Waltzing Matilda. Valsa Matilda. Uh, Matilda writes, "Greetings, Mark. I'm so delighted you are feeling better and your short video appearance." was wonderfully reassuring. I'm curious to know if you are restarting your show. I keep looking at the GB News schedule and I can't see it. Am I missing something? Have the nasty overlords of Ofcom made it impossible for you? Whatever happened with those complaints? Well, there were Ofcom's uh, uh, spokesperson, I think, told The Guardian that they had uh, recently, they had two open complaints. One was... Uh, went away. They basically uh, closed the investigation. There's another two that are open. Uh, I think one is the uh, Naomi Wolf uh, episode of the show, and one is something I can't remember. And they're considering opening a third, which I think was over a guest-hosted episode. And that is totally unaccepted, you Ofcom buggers. I mean, that is just so... You don't launch uh, an investigation into a guest-hosted episode of a guy's show. That's completely insulting to the guy. It's pathetic. Uh, so there, there is uh, an Ofcom issue, but there is also... I don't think I'm saying anything that people haven't picked up on. There is also a a GB News issue, which it's not really appropriate to go into on our Clubland Q&A, but I'll probably go into it a bit next week. Many people have, and it's related to Ofcom, many people have noticed uh, watching GB, it's reflected in softening numbers too uh, for certain shows. They've noticed that the tone has changed almost as if a policy decision has been taken, perhaps at the highest level, perhaps at the boardroom level, uh, about how they're going to cover some certain subjects and certain other subjects, as you know, the ones we uh, cared about on, the, on, on this show and talk about on, uh, in, on TV and in audio and in print, a lot of those issues like seem to have gone away and uh, the station has fallen oddly silent on them. And as I said, that has been reflected in certain softened numbers. I have enormous respect for my friends at GB News, for not all of them, I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that, but for, uh, for Bev Turner and for Michelle Dewberry and for Neil Oliver and for Dan Wooten. I'm not going to list them all. There's, uh, there's, we'd be here a long time. Uh, but I do detect a certain change of tone, as many viewers have, 
And if you're thinking whether that has consequences for the Mark Stein show, well, maybe it does. And we will talk a little bit about, we'll talk a bit more about, uh, you know, I'm trying here, I'm trying to be discreet here. If you, if I, if I, you were to bump into me as I leave the studio here um, and uh, take me to a bar and uh, ply me with a, a couple of beers, I could probably spill all the beans to you, but I'm, I think I'll leave the full explanation uh, till next week. There is Ofcom is. Do you know the first thing? This was my first. This was my return to UK media for the first time in decades. And you wonder when you listen to the first thing that strike. As I said, I know this personally because I would have died. I was according to my delightful infirmiere de Jeanne Audrey. I was fifteen minutes from death. With hindsight, I un understand that. I, I don't know whether I've said this, but the, basically, I was, I was fumbling. I'd gone to the wrong... I decided to go to the hospital, and I'd gone to the wrong door. So I'd gone to the mortuary, and they said, you're, you're a little early. Uh, you can't come in while you're still breathing. So I actually... Uh, it was like an old 19th century, very gothic mortuary with gargoyles and the like. Uh, so at that point, I was so weak that I actually stumbled around the side of this tiny little hospital. And I was sort of pawing my way along the wall for support because I was like woozy and getting out of focus. And so I putting my hands on the wall, I come around the other side of the hospital and uh, I, I press the button there, and Audrey comes to the door and sees I'm dying and uh, rushes me, whistles a couple of colleagues, and I'm on the slab and being wired up. And then within minutes of faxing that to the big fancy pants specialty cardio hospital, uh, now and whatever away, she shoved me into the ambulance and we went, and we went down there. If that situation had recurred, had occurred in the United Kingdom, for example, I'd be dead. In, in the UK, the, France and Britain spend about the same per capita on healthcare, but France has much better outcomes because it has, I think, nearly two and a half times the number of beds that uh, the UK does. So there's none of that, you know, idling in the parking lot waiting for a bed to open up. Nothing in Britain works. It's it's absolutely. I mean, that's not strictly true. There's some, you know, there's certain fabulous restaurants in St James's work just about. But uh, huge aspects of daily life for tens of millions of people don't work. And you think to yourself, why does this? Why is the media coverage so crap? And none of, nobody is talking about anything that matters, including things that we cover, excess deaths, which is as basic as it can get. I had a very interesting, I just, just again, just to, just to sort of diverge slightly, I've been seeing a lot of cardiologists, as you know, and one cardiologist happened to uh, show me something that I thought was very interesting because he'd, he knew who I was and he'd... 
uh, watched the show and everything. And so he produced some graphs uh, and tables uh, on this excess mortality business. And he, what he was telling me, and in fact showing me with some uh, various uh, pre-print uh, research indications, is that one effect of these so-called vaccines is that they're an accelerant. So something that uh, might have, like all the myocarditis, for example, so something that might have got you when you were 87 or you were 94 now kicks in 20 to 25 years earlier. Uh, so if it would, would have got you when you were 94, now it gets you when you're 69. Now, he said that's why we're seeing all these excess deaths among the young and middle-aged, which is true in most, in most uh, countries with a high degree of vaccination. So in other words, North America, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, so forth. Um, and I, what stuns me is the way nothing real, even when it's staring you in the face, is talked about on so-called British news channels. And instead, you have all this palace intrigue. Oh, is uh, so-and-so going to be uh, next week's Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster? Stuff I couldn't care less about. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Ofcom, which didn't exist the last time I was in British telly and radio, I mean, there were similar bodies, but they were regarded for the most part as people who managed frequencies and wavelengths and technical things like that. And they had a very light uh, regulatory touch. But the idea that they could suppress whole areas of conversation the way these buggers at Ofcom does. Ofcom... The, the predecessors of Ofcom, like the Independent Broadcasting Authority and the Radio Authority, would never have got invited to Davos and indeed would never have <coughs> wanted to go to Davos. Uh, so, we have a, so we have a situation where they are, they are actually seeing themselves as hardcore censors. And the result is the crap you see on all these so-called British news channels. Uh, which don't whole areas of uh, the collapsing state of the United Kingdom and the broader West are simply not discussed on these channels, and and so there's been a tonal change. And GB News was an exception to that. Um, and in fairness, uh, chaps like Neil Oliver are still exceptions to that. But there are fewer there there are fewer of them, and from the very top. Uh, there seems to have been a decision to change how they do these things. But as I said, we'll get into that uh, a little bit more uh, next week, uh, I think. Uh, Mark says, so glad to... No, no, wait a minute, I'm Mark. Yeah, Timothy McDonald says, <laughs> you're confusing me, Timothy. I'm Mark, you're Timothy. It's not going to work if we start swapping roles. Timothy McDonald says, Mark, so glad to have you out of the hospital. Serious question here that doesn't involve politics or music. Given your health issues, 
Could you install the medical equipment you've been hooked up to in your GB News studio? Then attach yourself to the electrodes before every show and have displays of the real-time vital sign numbers. Your doctors want to keep under control, EKG, pulse rate, etc., in the right hand, upper right-hand corner of the GB News screen so that the viewers can see them in real time. They did this with the astronauts. I think it would provide an air of tension and suspense like at the end of Goldfinger with the ticking clock. Uh, I don't think that is really suspenseful in Goldfinger, do you? We all know, we all know, even by Goldfinger, which was whatever it was, the third film in the series, um, we all know that by the time that they put the ticking clock there, the minute they put the ticking clock up, you know that 007 is going to switch off the bomb or the laser or whatever it is before the end of the ticking clock. So it actually, I would argue that it actually drains all the suspense out of the final running around uh, with the guys in uh, the tinfoil suits and the little golf buggies uh, and uh, he's shooting them all on an industrial scale. I think it takes all the... I think it takes the ticking clock takes all the tension out of it, I think. At the very least, it would be interesting to see which guests and issues really get your motor running. They don't have that on Fox News and the BBC. And if the vital sign numbers shoot up to a disturbing level... We could call the ambulance for you, kind of like a therapy dog, but remotely and without the additional vacuuming and damage to the few furniture. I think it would make great television. What are your thoughts on this? I'd be interested to see what other Stein Club members think about it as well. Uh, maybe. I, uh, as I said, I had yesterday, I was on the slab and uh, wired up with the electrodes because I got a bit of good news at the end of it, which I don't always get from all this kind of thing. Um, but I'm I sort of a bit bored by it. Before they um, clamp the electrodes on your chest, they have to uh, shave um, a uh, they have to shave the spot where they put the electrode down, lest lest one. Of, I'm not saying you know I'm full uh, the Burt Reynolds scale her suitness for you ladies who remember the uh, first issue of Playgirl magazine, but it, it's like you can have. Um, just uh, very light uh, follicles uh, here and there, and they have to shave them before they clamp these electrodes on. I don't know whether I'd be willing to go through that uh, before the start of each show. Uh, I may say, actually, just going back to what I was talking about earlier, uh, the change in tone at GB News, that rather than, uh, you know, grooming gangs or insane vaccine mandates or uh, mandatory bug diets or close down all the farms all the uh, it'd be just as likely to be internal memos from GB news or some twit barking in my ear about having to uh, do some Ofcom mandated uh, bit of blather uh, that would actually get my numbers shooting up. So I don't actually feel that, uh, you know, Ofcom and uh, their rules are that good for your health. Anyway, um, I haven't even had it. I said you'd have to meet me outside the studio and buy me a couple of beers for me to, to, to loosen my lips, but they seem to be getting looser with every question. Uh, Veronica from New Zealand right? Hi, Mark. Wonderful news that you're back, sounding and looking so well. 
Have you been following the recent activities of your old pal Boris Johnson? He has been traveling all over the world, essentially lobbying on behalf of the government of Ukraine, the only one he still represents, unless he gets rid of Sunak soon. I, I don't entirely rule out, because he, he, he thinks outside the box. I don't entirely rule out Boris actually figuring he can become the next head honcho in Ukraine. Why is he so keen to keep the Ukrainian laundry going? Is he on a Biden-esque 10% for the big guy deal? Or is this all part of his Churchill impersonator act? At least Churchill had Britain's interests in mind. Boris seems totally cavalier about that. Also, do you believe that Boris has never heard of Tucker Carlson? Thanks and take... No, I know, I know for a fact that he has heard of Tucker Carlson for at least, let me do the, I'm maybe a little off on the arithmetic here, but I would say for at least 15 years. Boris is just full of it these days. Do you know, again, I shouldn't get indiscreet, but I happened to dine uh, last night uh, after the good news about my medical condition with one of Boris's a man who was formerly one of Boris's closest friends, who now utterly despises him, as so many people do. We know he doesn't. When he's sort of advising the Republican Party to back off the Tucker Carlson agenda, I wish the Republican Party was on the Tucker Carlson agenda, because, again, it's at least about, about real stuff. All Boris's bollocks. Boris took a huge majority, the best Tory results since the 70s, and blew it away with nothing, with trivia, with garbage. He wasted every minute of every day. Now, uh, you say, oh, well, what about the COVID? OK, he had the COVID. What he did with the COVID is he just... Uh, subcontracted that entire subject to the so-called experts, the so-called science. So in theory, that should have freed up time for him to do other stuff. He never did. It's all just shallow, superficial bollocks. I said that I liked his thing about calling England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, the awesome foursome. I liked his thing about uh, his throwaway thing about putting a uh, roundabout on the bottom of the Irish Sea with exits for England, <laughs> Scotland, Wales, about where the Isle of Man, I think. They might have moved the Isle of Man and, and Northern Ireland. I like that as a throwaway line. It's only really funny if you're also doing other stuff. And he did nothing. He did nothing. He squandered uh, three years and a huge majority. And I have complete content. I don't know why anybody, I don't think it's, he's not on the 10% for the big guy scale. I think he looks at how the Bidens and these other stinkingly corrupt American political families live and think, oh, golly, I wouldn't mind living like that. Why, why is it only corrupt America? I can be as corrupt as Joe Biden. Why can't I get that kind of money? Nobody wants to give him that kind of money. But he'd like to be playing. It's 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 truly it's truly pathetic. Truly uh, pathetic. I can't I can't I can't uh, I I can't I I was I was a little bit shocked as I said dining with someone who's known Boris for over thirty years. 
and was once one of his closest friends and just feels that he betrayed not only his friends, he betrayed the country. Now, one thing you may have noticed in the news uh, just today is that uh, the great song Delilah, Delilah, has been banned. If you go to the rugby in Wales, they always, they, they always, the crowd always sings it. I love it. Oh, 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 Delilah. <coughs> and they've now banned it because they don't think uh, that it's it's uh, appropriate because of the subject of violence against women. They're going to cancel this. This is if you think you can defend and preserve, you know, this is what ultimately at some level uh, people like J.K. Rowling get. There's going to be nothing. You know, our popular culture is exhausted and it's not enough that it is just crap. It's, it's reached the stage where it has to destroy all the non-crap that came before it, even unto Delilah. And as you know, when we've had situations where uh, the police have arrested a uh, guy for singing kung fu fighting on oldies night in a bar, we've uh, taken it upon ourselves to make kung fu fighting the the hill to die on. And that means that we have to extend that principle and fully declare that this is an even bigger hill to die on. Uh, a great song by Les Reed. I miss Les Reed so much. Great song by Les Reed and Gordon Mills. As sung by the Boyo of Boyos, Tom Jones. I saw the light on the night that I passed by her window. I saw the flickering shadows of love on her blind She was my woman As she deceived me I watched and went out of my mind the street to her house and she opened the door She stood there laughing I felt the knife in my hand and she laughed no more My, my, my Delilah Why 
Tom Jones with a great song by Les Reed and Gordon Mills. I saw the flickering shadows of love on her blind. That is a great line. Uh, that is a great song. Uh, and it's a it's a unique song. It's a song all to itself. Uh, and so, of course, it has to be cancelled. Uh, as I said, I miss... Les Reed and I miss uh, Jeff Stevens. Les and uh, Jeff wrote There's a Kind of Hush All Over the World Tonight. And um, uh, I, just about the last thing I did before my heart attacks uh, was the Sods Dinner, Society of Distinguished Songwriters in London. And Les and Jeff are no longer uh, with us, um, but... Um, uh, Jeff's daughters and uh, members of Les's family and all kind, all kinds of uh, people at the Sods dinner and um, uh, that's one of those and and actually this year uh, sometimes when they all get to when they bring everyone up on stage uh, Don Black and Tony Hatch and Tim Rice and whoever and they all want a number to sing together they often opt for Delilah. And I have the feeling that at uh, private dinners of songwriters is about the only time you're going to be hearing Delilah. They want. It's important to remember this. You can't. Every concession you make just provides the step to the next concession. And this is the stupidity of it all. Uh, it even gets the stuff, you know, stuff that I don't care about, like Fairy Tale of New York, the Pogues. Uh, I, I, I like that because I have happy memories of Kirsty McCall from a long time ago. But, you know, uh, the, the, the idea, it's coming, they're, they're, they're banning stuff. Uh, there will be on the, on the, if you accept the terms by which they ban Delilah, then there will be nothing left. Now, what operatic are? Do you know how many operatic arias are sung by uh, uh, people in the throes of death? Uh, Mike Bat actually made this point that, you know, uh, what, what about what about Macbeth? You know, there's a lot of death in that. Are we gonna, you know, the whole the whole it's a it's a moronizing it's. It's cultural moronization, so that in the end, our crapped-out society will deserve to die. Um, oh, I'm amazed how many people are interested in Boris Johnson. Because, <laughs> as I said, I dined last night with one of his closest friends, and he couldn't have been less interested in him, except for two minutes of brutal pissing upon him. Gregory Lawton says Boris Johnson has launched a new career promoting the Ukraine's interest in the war with Russia. Is this an attempt at image rehabilitation or do you think his interest is sincere? I don't think there is anything sincere about Boris Johnson. The funny thing is that there is a real war going on in parts of Ukraine. And then there's which actually is underreported. And then there is what we have seen on uh, TV for close to a year now, which is Bono jetting in to do a walkabout with Zelensky. Uh, you know, uh, that's groovy, 
but it's not a real war, or uh, as the French would say, c'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. Ce n'est pas la guerre. Vraiment. Ce n'est pas la guerre. It's a completely... And Boris is part of the ce n'est pas la guerre side of it. I don't think anyone need... I mean, there is the public indifference to Ukraine, which is growing. There are all those people, you recall, who took their COVID masks off their Twitter avatars and replaced them with the Ukrainian flag. That's all died down a bit. But you can't keep it going um, because where it's going is really not anywhere good. Uh, also, on a sort of related theme, Simon Arnold says, Hi, Mark, how long do you think it will be before Rishi Sunak is removed from office? Good luck with that. He is the deep states candidate. Rishi Sunak um, is... It was installed by anti-democratic forces. He's not someone with a big, huge majority like Boris. He's not someone who was elected by the members of the party, like Liz Truss. He's just someone who was installed by who knows whom. They're all going to be like that. Eventually, all the leaders around the West are going to be like that. And it'll be the way it, you know, so if you think of the Trumpian thing, where Trump was elected and immediately afterwards they launched the Russian investigation to hobble him. Uh, because it's very difficult with fixed terms, as in the United States, to actually remove someone from office, although they gave it a bloody good go with Trump. But in the Westminster system, uh, so in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and certainly uh, in continental Europe, uh, when if by some accident the wrong person winds up as leader of the largest party and therefore prime minister, they will do to those guys what they did to Liz Truss. No one, Rishi Sunak, I can't even, you know, I, I've made this I've made this point before, but it's like, how exactly did he become richer than the king? Because uh, that's a novelty in this system. Uh, the uh, we don't you know to become that rich, you it used to be that you'd have to invent the Ford Model T or even Windows ninety eight. Well, he didn't do any of that. He just became rich in some... He's, it's almost as if 15 or so years ago, certain persons identified him as the kind of person they were going to waft upwards into position, and then they just set about doing it. And I'm not particularly... You know, you could say the same thing about Jacinda Ardern, who, don't forget, was just an indifferent Tony Blair staffer a little over a decade ago. Uh, well, no, that's probably 15 years ago now. Uh, but it could just as easily have been Justin Trudeau, who was the indifferent Tony Blair stuff. I mean, these people are all completely interchangeable. You know, one, as I always say, 1-800-political 
leaders. They don't have any real area code. John Fatchy says, uh, actually, uh, John Fatchy says, what is the music that is nursing you back to health? Have you stumbled upon any accidental optimism in this time of healing and recovery? Forgive this non sequitur observation. The world seems to be in the balance between dominant masses of sloth and gluttony and in, an industrious, competent minority. And I believe everyone expects to be the latter. Hope you're feeling better. Get well soon. There is a measure of truth to that. Um, you know, one. Uh, well, you know, not to go always. I'm. I'm basically would entertain any conspiracy theory these days. But if you just to go back to what I was saying, when you talk about the dominant masses of sloth, it's true that in the overall aggregate. People's the percentage of people's lives in which they are productive gets is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking because they they finish their stupid pseudo university education ever later and they retire ever earlier. And so the big problem. And again, let's just tie this back to what I was saying earlier is that you now have millions of every functioning Western government is presiding over societies where people expect to spend the last 30 years of their lives at leisure, or at leisure, however you prefer to say it. And in many cases, that can be very expensive for the state because you have state health care commitments to people over a certain age. And if it can be particularly expensive if people live a long time uh, but they spend the last of those years with dementia, which, which with increasing longevity in the West has become a problem because that's labor intensive. You need carers and all the rest of it. So if you were actually looking at this problem with uh, the heartlessness of certain persons, the best thing you could come up with is something that relieves you of that problem. And what did I just say this doctor had been talking to me about? He'd been talking to me about how the vaccines function as an accelerant. So that what happened would have happened to you in your 90s and late 80s now happens to you 25, 20 years earlier. Hence all the increased mortality for the young and middle aged. Gee, it's almost as if they came up with something that solves that problem of people expecting to spend the last 30 years of their lives at leisure. Uh, Martha says, Dear Mark, I noticed there was little attention by the Canadian media to the one-year anniversary of the trucker convoy's arrival in Ottawa a few days ago. Do you think they realise they got it wrong, or is that a level of self-awareness which they are not capable of? Martha, uh, before I say anything else, if you haven't yet seen it, go see our Stein Show special uh, in which Andrew Lawton and I spend a full hour on the Canadian truckers. Uh, you can see it on the Mark Stein Show page on our website. If you click the video drop-down menu and you click on the Mark Stein Show, and you go, I think, to the second row, 
which says Stein Show Special. And you'll see, I think you'll see it right up there, uh, Andrew Lawton, big Stein Show Special on the Canadian truckers. The reason the media don't want to do it is because they want to teach you the lesson that it didn't happen. Uh, that it's not just that it failed, it's just it's that it was an act of such utter insignificance to the onward march of the Trudopian state that they no longer even have to mention it. They don't think about how they got it wrong. You know, there's, there's the people who are on board with this, and it's a mistake. I had this all the time when he used to fill in for Rush, you know, where people would accuse me of Rush and Rush of just doing it for the money. And we're saying stuff like this because uh, we, um, uh, you know, because we don't believe it. We're not stupid enough to believe it, but we're just doing it. You know, you couldn't keep that up for the amount of time Rush did it. And I think to a certain extent that's true. They, their characterization of the truckers as these, you know, racists, the fact that Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, was willing to, uh, to say that people who were reluctant to get vaccinated were racist and sexist, uh, actually, I think, and, and the fact that nobody just laughed at him. None of the people standing around just go, <laughs> I've laughed. I, I, I've often laughed involuntarily when people have been peddling bollocks. Uh, I, I, did I mention this the other? I can't remember now. Uh, it's all the medication I'm on. But years ago, at the when I was at the BBC, there's, there was a period, a long period, when Dublin and London did not even agree on the names of their respective states, never mind any other associated issues. And so the BBC, through this workshop we all had to go to, in which they had, uh, you know, it, we were told the expressions we needed to use to avoid uh, using controversial partisan phrases that would trigger people. And I remember the first one, the guy stood up and said, uh, try not to say the British Isles. Uh, OK, yeah. Instead, say islands of the North Atlantic. And I went, because <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows that is never going to catch on. And so when Justin Trudeau, if you had been a self-respecting uh, reporter of the old school, when Justin Trudeau said that people were reluctant to get vaccinated because they were racist and sexist, uh, which is ridiculous, by the way, in the United States, the one of the identity groups that is least vaccinated are black people. So are they all are they all racist? Do they, you know, but nobody laughed and this crap is taken seriously. And you look at any CBC panel. You know, the CBC panels are boring as hell. Unwatchable, really, which is why 99% of Canadians don't watch them. But the most right-wing guy on those panels um, 
is my old friend Andrew Coyne from the National Post and Maclean's and other places. And Andrew's a very nice, uh, decent fellow, but he's nobody's idea of a rock-ribbed, hard right winger. So the only interesting thing about those panels is the casting it tells... Like someone like Michael Corrin, for example who, you know, not so many years ago, Michael Corrin was my warm-up act at Steinamite at uh, the uh, Metro Centre in Toronto. And then he had this, uh, he had yet another of his conversions, uh, so he's off the Catholics, he's into the trans thing now. Uh, and that's, and now he's on the CBC more than ever. The thing about it is, the thing about it, they don't think they got it wrong. They think that the people who supported the truckers got it wrong and they don't have the right to be wrong anymore. And so that's why it's necessary that the anniversary goes uh, unobserved. Um, Gail Yee says, uh, so uh, nice to hear you on Clubland Q&A again. Thank you very much, Gail. It is nice to be back. It's it's a bit my, uh, my voice um, is, is a little bit weak, so I don't always, uh, you know, I don't always, uh, it's, it's some, some days it's harder than others. A bit like, you know, it's, uh, that's, but I'm glad you're glad that I'm back and I'm happy to be back. And I thank uh, Laura and Andrew and um, for covering for me for recent weeks because sometimes I think I'm going to do it and then, you know, it's not uh, so great. Um, the uh, Dr. Roy writes, uh, Roy Epen says, Mark, I'm very glad you are feeling better. <laughs> we need you in Canada Bill C-11 pass. You all know Dr. Uh, Roy. He's uh, one of um, the stellar Montreal members of the Mark Stein Club. Dr. Roy uh, is right. The Canadian Senate has passed this Bill C-11, and uh, that means it only has to undergo royal assent, and it becomes law. And... Uh, it, uh, it it basically uh, requires YouTube, Netflix, Spotify, all these kinds of people to uh, respect the same rules on so-called Canadian content and um, uh, very and various other things. It's about control, and this is why. And, and you know, I think we can say we were a little bit ahead of the game here because it's five years. It's 27, well, I might be getting closer to six. 2017. Uh, 2017. That I started talking about the last photocopier in the woods. The powers that the online safety bill in the UK, the Westminster bill is actually even worse than the Ottawa bill. Uh, because it will actually give Ofcom greater powers than, say, GCHQ has, uh, the Government Signals and Intelligence Operation in Cheltenham. It will actually... So, in other words, Ofcom will have greater powers than the deep state to surveil 
citizens of the UK. This is the world we are moving into. It is the last photocopier in the woods. And, it, and you won't know about it. You won't know the internet is gone until you wake up one morning and your favorite website isn't there, your, the platform you use isn't there, or as with GB News in the last couple of weeks, uh, you gradually notice a not-so-subtle tonal change. Uh, and that, I think, is the... Um, and that, I think, is the uh, the big problem here. Joe Patterson says, while your guest hosts did a wonderful job filling in, it is great to hear your voice on Q&A again. I read this morning that Boris Johnson was asked if he wanted to move from 10 Downing Street to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He replied, I don't rule it out. would love to hear your thoughts on this. 10 Downing Street is the residence of the British Prime Minister. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is the residence of of the American president. Boris is eligible, and this is where, this is worth bearing in mind, gaming out. Boris is eligible uh, for both positions uh, because he was born in New York. There are only two prime ministers who have not been born in the British Isles or the islands of the North Atlantic, I should say. Apologies to our Irish listeners. <laughs> Any Duke of Wellington fans out there. Anyway, the, um, uh, he will, uh, there are only two. Andrew Bonnerlaw, uh, Canadian Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, because Commonwealth citizens are eligible to vote and to sit in Parliament and to sit in the Cabinet and to sit in Downing Street. Uh, and as, and the other one, apart from Andrew Bonnerlaw, is the disgraceful Boris Johnson, uh, who's the first American-born <laughs> uh, prime minister. So he was—he's a natural-born American. So he can actually run for president. Now he gave up his U.S. passport and supposedly gave up his renounced his U.S. nationality. If you ever follow people who sort of give up U.S. nationality, you'll know that they can reclaim it. And again, that's not the significant point. The significant fact is that he was unlike uh, Ted Cruz or John McCain or, <laughs> OK, I'll go there, Barack Obama. He was actually born in the United States, natural born citizen. And I don't entirely rule out. Boris. Now, there is one thing you have to do. You have to be a permanent resident of the United States uh, for three years. So, but what's he got to do? You know, all the big speaking fees are in America. Uh, so he could eat or, you know, he could uh, call up Rupert and get himself a gig on Fox. And all he'd have to do then is rent an apartment in Manhattan for three years and he'd be able to, he wouldn't, it's too late for 2020, uh, 2024, but it's not too late for 2028. So uh, I wouldn't, we live in weird times and I wouldn't rule it out. Speaking of that kind of stuff, Chris Hall says, hi, Mark. I was very glad to see your happy, smiling face in your recent video. For my question... I hesitate to go too heavy on the civilizational collapse front, so I just want to touch on something a little on the lighter side. I laughed out loud 
Over the past two nights, listening to Tucker Carlson offering to liberate Canada from the clutches of your prime minister and watching the pearl clutching from the NDP, that's the New Democratic Party, they wanted to uh, issue a resolution condemning uh, the United, condemning Tucker Carlson for threatening to invade Canada. I mean, honestly, it would have required unanimous consent in the House of Commons and enough people booed loudly uh, to make it obvious to the Speaker of the House that it wasn't going to pass. Uh, as a former Canuck, says Chris, I remember that making fun of the U.S. and making side comments about American politicians was almost a daily occurrence. But it seems that the segment of the Canadian populace are now totally devoid of a sense of humor. Yes, uh, you may recall um, Madame Arbour, my opponent in that monk debate in Toronto. Louise Arbour, a distinguished uh, judge from the Supreme Court of Canada and then a big shot at the U.N., uh, in uh, for uh, what was it the uh, high represent what do they call it high rep UN commissioner for refugees and uh, various other things very serious person but she permitted herself a snide little crack about how perhaps after November 2016's election remember who was ahead in the polls after the November 2016 election, there might be a sudden stampede of refugees. You know, she couldn't understand why I was opposed to refugees because it was a right-wing pro-American nut. Surely I should know that after Trump won the election, there'd be all kinds of American refugees steaming to Canada. So any, uh, any Canadian can piss on uh, Americans. But if, you, if it happens the other way around, Canada's amour proper, the humorous thing, uh, we've seen this before when whatever late night show it was that had the comic insult dog or whatever, and they sent the insult dog up to Quebec City and he uh, asked Quebecers which way to the Rue des Pussy. And uh, the, uh, when they found out that he was just implying that Quebecers are pussies, they all wanted to have a unanimous resolution. <laughs> I mean... Uh, you know, it is. Uh, so Chris says the Canadian populace are now totally devoid of a sense of humor. H-U-M-O-R. That's totally false, Chris. Canadians are totally devoid of a sense of humor. H-U-M-O-U-R. Got it? Uh, there is hope, however, as I've seen suggestions that Tucker should be invited to become PM. You see how this is working now? Boris becomes president of the United States. Tucker becomes uh, prime minister <laughs> of Canada. Uh, Joni Mitchell becomes president of France. It all comes. If that happy event were to occur, would you be available to become governor general? I always thought I would be governor general by now. And I'm actually rather, uh, I think about my last visit to Rideau Hall and I'm rather upset that I'm not uh, governor general. Uh, let's take one more question. Uh, Sam Bakarian writes, uh, Hey, Mark, what would Hunter Biden actually have to do in order to get in trouble? How much more criminal can you be? Drugs, abuse, graft, sexual harassment, uh, corruption and more. Never mind the moral and sexual weirdness. Maybe if he said men are men, women are women, he would get the treatment he deserves in the media. It's fantastic. You know, it's like the... He uses Hunter. Hunter's thing is that 
He's, he seems to be short of friends. So his only confidence uh, is hookers. So if you actually look on the Hunter Biden laptop material, you can Google around and you'll come up with it. He's like sitting there naked uh, uh, doing some crack and just sort of shooting the breeze with the hooker who looks to be around, you know, 15, 16 and uh, she's bored because if you're if you have sex for money, that's, you know, just about doable. But the conversation afterwards is interminable. But anyway, so he's lying there. He's doing the crack. He say, yeah, I don't know. My dad, uh, you know, my dad is the vice president. You know, so he's thinking of. He was vice. He was vice president, and then he he's now he's he's bored. He misses it. He wants to come back and uh, run for president. And the uh, and the girls go, oh, yeah, you know, she's like just looking at her nails, wishing he'd just like get his clothes on and go. And yeah, and Hunter's going, uh, yeah, and um, I don't know, maybe I should hold out for some big shot gig in the administration, chief of staff or something. You know, do you think that'd be right for me? And she's just going, oh, she didn't know anything about him except she's just had sex with him. And but so it's not really, it's hard to tell whether you'd be a crackerjack chief of staff just from that. And she's going, well, whatever. And this is, this ought to be, this would be enough if it was some Republican congressman uh, or a Republican, you know, someone connected to a Republican congressman. But in this case, it's like exactly as it was in the Clinton era where people didn't want to hear about all the sex, the aberrant uh, sex life. And that was used as a cover for all kinds of other stuff. And in this case, it's, being, it's used as a cover uh, for what's underpinning all of it, and, uh, which is that the Biden family are on the take from the Chinese Communist Party. And again, I go back to the point I have made since this tape first came into the news, that if this is what is on Hunter's laptop, you imagine what the Chinese have on him and Uncle Jim and Father Joe. That's the problem. There. I'll take one more. I'll take one more question. Um, Alison says, good afternoon, Mark. It was wonderful to see you in that short clip, and I'm looking forward to your return to your show. I was wondering if you had any insider palace gossip about King Charles's upcoming coronation. The rumours seem to indicate that it is going to be sort of woke, which is bad enough, but I wonder if Meghan and Harry will be allowed to attend. I personally think that would be extremely stupid and damaging. They are like a powder keg, those two. The Queen's coronation in 1953 was a magnificent event. Anything, any changes from that will be a mistake. The stuff we've already heard so far, a coronation, a what is it, a, a, a Commonwealth choir of LGBTQ uh, persons, or whatever it is, uh, yeah, that's great. Run it by the Ugandans, uh, because... Uh, uh, Mr. Musa, what's he called, Musavani? Um, uh, his uh, approach to homosexuals is that he wishes we could all go back to the uh, good old days when they were spared by their parents. So good luck with your gay choir from around the Commonwealth. <laughs> Remember Robert Mugabe? 
who accused Tony Blair of being a gay gangster leading the gay government of the gay United Gay Kingdom with a plot to impose gayness throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, and uh, people laughed at Robert Mugabe. It turns out it wasn't Tony Blair, though. It was just the king who's, uh, who's, who's minded to do that. God help us all. I, the, the, the queen, you know, one can fault the queen for all kinds of things. But the, the, the idea that you can do this to a thousand-year-old monarchy is, uh, is, just, uh, is just terrible, just ridiculous. It makes me, it makes me you know, just despair. I, I, we should get Dr. Roy on. Dr. Dr. Roy loves his sovereign, and he certainly loved the last sovereign, and uh, maybe he uh, feels the same about this one too. Uh, thank you so much for all your good wishes over this last couple of months. Um, so generous you i'm very touched you know last month i sang a song that says how i feel about you and all your kind words j'ai ton sourire dans mon cœur because uh, i i uh, have been in france and uh, i'm starting to uh, i think i'm starting to dream in french that's uh, and you may have noticed i'm beginning to lose my english anyway i sang j'ai ton sourire dans mon cœur and many of our anglophone listeners wrote to say how much they liked it or at any rate say how they were marginally less traumatized uh, when i sing in a language that they don't understand so here's another for my francophone trunk, this one has a terrific English lyric by Eric Mashwitz, who was basically a BBC executive who liked to dabble in songwriting. And he was a great BBC executive and uh, a, a pretty good songwriter, too. He wrote A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square and also the operetta Good Night Vienna. They made a film of that with Jack Buchanan and Anna Neagle. <laughs> And one Saturday night, this is around 1932 or whatever, uh, one Saturday night, Eric Mashwitz was motoring through Peckham in South London and noticed that Goodnight Vienna was playing at the local flea pit. There wasn't a big crowd around, so Mr. Mashwitz stopped and asked the cinema manager how well Goodnight Vienna was doing. And the guy replied about as well as Goodnight Peckham would do in Vienna. Anyway, here is Eric Mashwitz's greatest song. Uh, we do hear a little bit of his English lyric, but the bulk of this performance is the French text uh, by the marvellous Jacques Larue. At dinner one night, my friend Dorothée Berryman brought up the French version, which was introduced in 1936 by Jean Sablon. And I hadn't heard Monsieur Sablon's version in years, uh, so I dug it out and so enjoyed it that I rewrote Monsieur Larue's uh, French lyric to include uh, my own tip of the hat. Tip of the hat to Jean Sablon. Stay tuned for that. But first, a word in English. Oh, will you never let me be?
Sevier billet, cher fruit qui me rappelle les nuits à bord d'une Normandie si belle, la lampe qui repose, ces petites choses me parlent de Du refrain que Jean Sablon bien chante Le vent du soir là-bas Qui se lamente Et votre porte close Ces petites choses me parlent de Chérie, pourquoi ma voix quittait Pourquoi ma voix quittait Après ce que nous avons été Le parc au soir lorsque la cloche sonne Ce vieux boudoir ne vient plus personne à tous mes yeux se posent Ces petites choses me parlent de
ouvert ce soir à la dernière page à tous mes yeux se pose ces petites choses me parlent de Music by Jack Strachey, Parole Française, par Jacques Larue. But we heard a couple of my favorite lines from that marvelous Anglo lyric by Eric Mashwitz, Gardenia Perfume Lingering on a Pillow. Uh, if you, if you uh, ever hear that line and then scent Gardenia Perfume Lingering on a Pillow, uh, you will immediately think of that song. And the waiter's whistling as the last bar closes. The bar is closing. The waiters are whistling. But I shall return Rick McGuinness's Saturday movie date, Tal Backman on Sunday, all coming up at Stein Online. So stick with us. Stay safe. Stay free. Stay well. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.